For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Wise men follow him, they rose again. Wise men follow him, thank God for the renegades. Good morning, Northern Maine. Welcome to the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, the Conscience of Maine. Broadcast in Maine, Saturday, February 20th, 2016, on WXME, 780 AM in Monticello, 1700 AM in Lewiston, 88.1 FM in Westbrook and Orono, 96.5 FM in Brewer and Bangor, Maine. Well, Going to have snow until about 10 a.m. Saturday. Rain and snow between 10 a.m. and noon, and then rain afternoon. High near 39. South wind 11 to 15 miles an hour. Chance of precipitation 80%. <clears throat> New snow accumulation of less than one inch possible. Saturday night, rain showers likely. Possible mixing with snow after 2 a.m. Gradually ending. Cloudy, low around 32. Southwest wind around 8 miles an hour. Chance of precipitation, 70%. Little or no snow accumulation expected. Sunday, mostly cloudy, high near 41. Southwest wind, 7 to 10. Sunday night, partly cloudy, low around 22. Northwest wind around 8 miles an hour. Monday, sunny, high near 31. North wind, 6 to 8 miles an hour. We've got opportunities. Uh, snowmobiling is pretty poor. It's just the way it is. It happens once in a while. But it's a good time to cut firewood. The sap isn't flowing yet. Trees are still dry, low moisture content. If you want to get out there with a tractor or ATV or something and cut some firewood, you can do it. Snowmobile clubs get grumpy if you run the trails with an ATV, unless it's on your own land, or you have permission from the landowner. But you can get out and cut a little firewood in this good conditions, and it'll be nice and dry for next fall, or even this winter. It's pretty dry. You can cut an ash tree and burn it the same day. Ash trees are funny. Last tree to get its leaves in the spring, first tree to shed its leaves in the fall, and you can cut it and burn it the same day. It's a a real low moisture content tree. Just a little, a little suggestion there. I like to keep ash trees. Ash trees are valuable for many reasons. If you've got one growing on the lawn, it's all branches all over the place, and that's it's a pretty tree. But, but uh, ash trees are great for making handles and things. It splits easily, but it's a good, strong, stable hardwood. Makes pretty furniture. Good, valuable tree. Gas is a dollar sixty-two in Newport. 
Same price as last week. Hasn't gone up or down. Lowest price in the state. Gas is 202 in Pittsburgh, down seven cents. So they finally, the guy that bought a lot of gas, small operation, mom and pop gas station, without a lot of traffic. If they bought, had the tank topped off, and was not aware that prices are going to go down and continue to go down. They're going to stay down all of this year. Talk a little bit more about that in a couple of minutes. But it's uh, they they dropped at seven cents. They realized that sooner or later they're going to be able to top it off and at a low price, and they're probably going to run that tank down as far as they can. Some people have to buy. They roll in there, they're on empty, they have to buy some gas. Diesel is $1.91 all over southern Maine, and that's up 12 cents. They had a gas war going down there. I remember gas wars from years ago. You know, get three or four guys together, and each one of them chip in 25 cents, get five gallons of gas, and ride around all evening. That was 1950s. They, uh, but it's a dollar dollar ninety one all over the place down in South Portland. It's seventeen cents up seventeen cents rather. Excuse me. Diesel. Let me. <laughs> Diesel is a dollar ninety one in Portland, and it's up twelve cents. There we go. And diesel is two sixty three in Pittsburgh. And it's down six cents. Now this, I expect that this station in Pittsburgh, I don't think I've ever been in Pittsburgh, but I imagine it's probably a relatively small station, low volume. And they've dropped their price seven cents on gas. The same station has dropped their price on diesel, six cents. Those people who never venture forth from Pittsburgh think probably think it's a wonderful thing. <laughs> this weekend... And after this show, headed down to an apple seed in Monmouth. Monmouth is a great fishing game club down there. They've got a pond right there in the front yard, so to speak, and it's a, they dredged it. It's a man-made pond, but they really dug it down. They had a long-reach backhoe, and they dug a deep pond. And they've got uh, they've got some trout in there, and they got some bass in there. It's for kids only. It's to get kids involved in fishing. A few turtles have found it, and they're, they hang out there. And uh, They've got skeet. They've got trap. They've got sporting clays. They've got a, a pistol range. They've got a small bore rifle range. And they've got a 100-yard rifle range. It's the longest rifle range I have on the, on the uh, premises. But they've got an opportunity to get a longer rifle range. And... Uh, don't know if they got enough interest in the club to do that, but it would be a good thing to do. People like to like to sight in. They got a lot of power lines down there in southern Maine, and you can see a deer down there, 400 yards down the power line. Uh, you know, you'd like to know where your rifle is. Anyway, going down there, going to down today, stop, spend the night in the area. And uh, 9 o'clock tomorrow morning, the first round goes downrange on a winter seat. Now, 
Project Appleseed has shoots year-round, but we've never had a winter seed in Maine. We're going to have one tomorrow. And it's simply the apple seed done in the wintertime. And we teach firearm safety and marksmanship. We also tell a history of what happened on April 19, 1775, when the Redcoats were sent back to Boston empty-handed because they were not able to seize our firearms as intended. 800 Redcoats went out marching through the towns and villages in the countryside in Massachusetts, and they marched right down the main street. We got 800 troops marching down the main street on foot, you know, no one village can can uh, win a battle with them. But the word went out. Paul Revere and William Dawes and numerous others spread the alarm. Say alarm, that's the way I say it at Appleseed, and they spelled it A-L-A-R-U-M. Over the years, our language changes and spelling of words changes and but they spread the alarm. And the Redcoats knew that there were arms and munitions in Concord. And walked into a Walmart this week, and there was 22 ammunition for sale on the shelf. First time I've seen that since August of 2014, a year and a half. And uh, it's a good thing. And the prices have come down. I, I, I have a photograph that somebody sent me of a brick of 500 rounds of 22 ammunition for $100. Holy mackerel. That's 20 cents a round. The 22s. I can remember buying a box of 50 22s for 49 cents when I was a kid. And kids could buy ammunition back then. Go in the store, buy a box of 22s, just like buying a box of a, a, a tube of BBs. You walk in the hardware store and buy a few sticks of dynamite, too. Those days are gone. We're losing more and more of our freedom. And as it's done over a long period of time, you know, it's not a good thing. If you're looking at, uh, you're on the internet sometime, look up uh, hog hog killing or hog hunting, and you'll find that they've got a, a product that uh, is used for exploding targets. The novelty, uh, you know, you, you can fire the target and the target goes bang. Well, you get enough of that material and uh, you stack them up, you get a big bang. And they sell this by the pound. It's not mixed when it's shipped to you. It's a white powder and a dark gray powder. And you mix the two together with a with a wooden spoon, <clears throat> put it into a paper cup or whatever, and uh, you shoot it from 50 yards away and it makes a big bang. And if you get a five-gallon bucket of it, it looks just like the five-gallon bucket that people feed wild hogs with, you know, their own hogs. And the hogs will come out of the woods and 
big hog leads it away. They go out there, and the hogs all gather around. Down in the south, wild hogs are a big problem. And if they uh, they got loose in Texas, and they came from Texas into Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, South Carolina, Kentucky. There were wild hogs in New Hampshire back in the early 40s because uh, the Corbin family established Corbin Park near Newport, New Hampshire. And they built a big fence. In the 1938 hurricane, a lot of trees came down across the fence, and they had some exotic animals. They had European red deer, and they had some uh, some large antlered uh, creatures from Iran, and they looked like an like a an impala. You see on these nature things on TV. You see these these various kinds of uh, antelopes. And they had some of those there in New Hampshire. And they had wild hogs, wild, wild Russian boars, what they called them. And they're just wild hogs. They're not too, uh, not, not much difference when they go wild. They had a pretty good coat of fur on them. And uh, they got out. And they tore up cornfields. And people in New Hampshire uh, exterminated them. So there are no wild hogs in New Hampshire, unless somebody had one get loose lately. But they don't have an established population. So, they, uh, they'll they track these wild hogs to some feed. They're put out for domestic hogs. And you shoot that five-gallon bucket full of this material with a .30-06 or even a, even a .223, and it blows up. It's pretty spectacular. And there's YouTube of it. Interesting to watch. And there's no limit on hogs. You can shoot as many hogs as you want down in Tennessee. So that's a kind of a diversion from apple seed. But we've got this apple seed down in, in Newport, excuse me, in Monmouth, and uh it's right on Route 202, 12 miles southwest of Augusta, Monmouth Fishing Game Club. We've got five instructors coming, and we have we've only got about five or six pre-registered students. And we've only got one student at the moment who has never been to an apple seed before. The man is 39 years old. He's just curious and wants to see this. So... The reason we're attracting all these people is the winter seed patch. If you qualify as a rifleman in the wintertime, uh, you get a rifleman patch. They call it a winter seed patch. It is black and blue and white, and it has icicles hanging off the bottom of it. It's nobody in Maine has ever earned a winter seed patch before. So it's some somebody will certainly shoot riflemen. You know, your fingers get cold, you're laying on the cold ground, or standing up in the cold wind. And, you know, everybody likes to go shooting in the spring and fall. But we've never had a winter seed in Maine before. 
We're having one tomorrow and Sunday. So if you want, we do walk-ons. If we've got a full roster of shooters and you walk on, we may be able to accommodate you, but it's best to pre-register so that we can plan better. We have more instructors for more shooters. We've had rifle seeds where everybody is a novice. I mean, somebody has stopped at Walmart on the way in and bought a box with a 1022. He hasn't even opened the box yet and looked at the 1022 or whatever. You know, we had a guy that bought a, a cricket, a little tiny single-shot twenty-two caliber rifle for his daughter. And we had a family that's of accomplished shooters, a military veteran, still in the Army Reserves. His daughter showed up. She banged away with an AR-15, nine years old. She was a very serious, safe shooter. People can learn this. They say that Davy Crockett shot his first bear when he was only three years old. He took his father's rifle, and the bear was menacing the cabin. He cocked it, fired, bam, shot the bear. He's probably near his fourth birthday because those rifles were heavy. Maybe he rested on something. Rest is a good thing. Take every advantage you possibly can. We teach firearm safety. It's our primary goal is to teach the safe handling of firearms. We want you to be accurate also. We teach safe and accurate handling of firearms. The British uh, were a bunch of city people. The British soldiers were mostly draftees. And the local judge would say, you're going to jail or you're going to the army. Pick it up. And they'd go they'd join the army. And that was done in this country uh, various times in our past. Judge had a troublemaker in town, and he'd just say, look, you're going to jail for a year, or you're going to go in the Army. You pick it, Paula, and the guy would join the Army. And the Army would usually straighten these people out. There are incorrigibles in society that need to be separated from society. But that uh, most people can change their ways and They're not going to be angels, but they can behave themselves well enough to function in civilized society. Women, too. Not just men. Women make good shooters. They're, They're better than most men at fine detail, intricate things. And they can shoot. My wife made riflemen. Those of you that know her know that my wife gets around in the power wheelchair. We have adaptive apple seed. If you have a handicap and you cannot get down in prone position and get back up again, well, we'll find a way to teach you to shoot accurately and safely. Some people cannot get in a sitting position and get back up again. They simply can't do it. Some people uh, cannot stand steadily. They're just not able to, you know, stand and, and hit the target. These people need to do all of their shooting from the prone position. 
and we have different ways of timing the firing. We do a lot of rapid fire at Appleseed because when push comes to shove, there's a lot of rapid fire going on. Uh, we've got bench rest shooters that show up. They're good at what they do. But you're not going to have a bench when you're in, as they say, extremists. You've got a bunch of bell, blue-helmeted Belgians going house-to-house confiscating firearms in our country, part of a U.N. force, coming in to help us. We need to make up our minds prior to that as to how we're going to address that situation. Our forefathers did. We knew that British were going to come out of Boston and seize our firearms and our ammunition. In 1775, there was no black powder made in the United States. Oh, I should say America, because the United States didn't exist yet. That happened six years later, eight years later. So we had 13 original colonies, all separate entities, on the Atlantic coast. And the British were... were had an empire over here. And Thomas Gage was the British general in charge of all of the Americas. All the British colonies in the Americas. From Canada right down into parts of South America, they had British colonies. And he was in charge of the whole thing. And he knew that the source of black powder was... England, France, and Belgium, for the most part. And there might have been some uh, manufactured in other parts of Europe, but it was a, it was an art how to make it and how to grind it without blowing the place up. It was a hazardous manufacturing process. And we had powder here that was left over from the French and Indian Wars in 1755, approximately. Don't hold me to that, but it was about 20 years prior to the beginning of the American Revolution was the old French and Indian War. And powder was guarded carefully. You didn't waste it. And uh, they did a lot of drill, training, marching, handling of firearms, going through the motions, because you build muscle. They didn't know there was such a thing as muscle memory, but they went through drills. And they could. <clears throat> they wanted to be able to get three off three shots in one minute, which was rapid fire back then. Your first one is actually when the clock starts. So you've got to get two more shots off within 60 seconds. And that was a standard for the Minutemen. Minutemen were young men. 20, 25 years old, usually unmarried, and they were paid a very small amount, like a shilling a month as a token, uh, just to be ready, to know where their, where their musket and flints and powder were, and they could grab it and head out to the emergency in one minute, drop what they're doing and go. And then there were the militias. Militias were uh, 
volunteers who served their towns. And they they could stand off and fight off an Indian raid, for example. And uh, they also had uh, committees of safety, people in town that would respond to an emergency, like a volunteer fire department today. Volunteer fire departments get called out in Maine for all kinds of calamities, not just fires, floods and, and uh, blowdowns, trees across the road. And, you know, we have to deal with a lot of things by ourselves. So uh, Paul Revere learned that up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, there was a, a fort right at the mouth of the harbor, right where the port, the, the uh, Portsmouth Naval Shipyard is today. And he learned that they were going to sail some ships up there to seize all of the gunpowder and take it back to Boston. Because they were afraid that New Hampshire and Massachusetts were the two colonies that were the most resistant to red coat tyranny. And they did. They went up there. But Paul Revere, on December 21st, the first day of winter, rode his horse up to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, told the local militias what was going to happen. And they got together a large body of troops, militiamen, went out to the fort, raided the fort. There was a big brawl, essentially. Nobody got shot in that whole thing. We took all of the powder, some of the cannons, some of the muskets, and took it back into Portsmouth, New Hampshire, before the British warship got there. The ground was frozen on December 21st. Paul Revere rode his horse carefully up this so his horse wouldn't step in a rut and go lame, and he got there in time to warn them. Now, what did they do with the powder? Many kegs of powder were taken out of the fort and into Portsmouth. Nobody wanted a keg of powder in their house because if the spark got to it, you know, it blow the house, the kingdom come, and everybody in it. So the powder kegs were stored in the churches. They put the powder underneath the pulpit or the altar in the church. When that preacher started preaching about fire and brimstone, he had it between his feet. True story. How do we know these things? They wrote it down for us. And in Massachusetts, they had several powder alarms where the Redcoats marched out at night, and at dawn they would go into a village and seize the powder. And there's a place there in Massachusetts today where they have Powder House Square. The powder was stored in a stone building, and there was no fireplace in there and no no wood stove in there. Ben Franklin hadn't invented the wood stove yet. He was the one that did invent it. So they uh, finally, they said, uh, you know, they did seize the uh, powder from Powder House Square in that town, just outside of Boston. And there's a, there's a credit union. There goes my phone. 
hope I'm still on the radio. The credit union down there is called Powderhouse Credit Union. I recommend that any everybody come to an apple seed. We're going to have a bunch of them this year, and we're going to have one. The weekend closest to April 19th is our primary event for the year. We have lots of flags that flew during the American Revolution, all kinds of different flags. We had not Betsy Ross had not standardized the flag yet, which was 13. 13 bars and 13 stars for the 13 colonies. But April 19th is a special weekend for us. We try to have as many apple seeds as possible. We hope to have two in Maine. The first one is going to be at Monmouth. But uh, we used to have have the first one of the year at Columbia, but it always seemed to fall on the same weekend as the Smelt Festival. <laughs> so we were competing with the Smelt Festival, and there's a lot of people that come to Columbia, Maine, to the Smelt Festival. It's a sign of spring. It's a ritual. It's a it's a joyous time in, in Columbia, in Machias, Maine. Lots of people volunteer, and they have lots of uh, organizations have Smelt Fries, grains, and various churches. Sonic Lodge and different organizations. It's a big deal down there. So we're competing with that. We'll have a better turnout if we do it at a different time. So, tomorrow, Monmouth, Maine, be there at 8 o'clock if you're coming down. We hope to have one up in the county this year. We've never had one up in the county. We've got to be able to find a range up there. We, we'll put on an apple seed in a gravel pit. All we need is a porta potty. And uh, we've done it. Did one in Freeman Township. Love the name of that place. Freeman Township. Went to a lunch this weekend, uh, this week rather, and, and uh, Bruce Poliquin spoke at this luncheon. Quite a time. But, uh, really enjoyed it. He's learned a lot in the year and a half he's been down there, D.C. I'm real pleased that he made it instead of Mikey. Mikey's making more money down there than Bruce is, I think. Like he's got himself a job in the, in the Obama administration. He's right at home down there. But Bruce got it up and uh, got the crowd's attention. But down there in Washington, we've got to spend less. We've got to borrow less. We've got to legislate less. And we've got to regulate less. And, you know, we've got $19 trillion in debt in our country. And the debt is twice what our veteran benefits are. We've got a bunch of veterans that are retired on disability and various things. And the interest payments are double what our veterans get. So because they've borrowed all this money for other things, many of which were unnecessary, you know, it's it's more more difficult to meet our obligations. We're supposed to have a balanced budget. 
and we we hope to have a balanced budget amendment passed. But we can't spend more than we take in. Every single state has to have a balanced budget. So for that year, it is balanced. But in many states, they have large debt loads because they've borrowed too much. Well, they're making the payments. The the budget is balanced, but the the interest on the, the debt keeps climbing, and that's money that you can't spend on other worthy and necessary projects, such as infrastructure and education. Now, according to the Maine Constitution, towns are supposed to fund their own education. But the legislature, decades ago, suckered the towns into saying, okay, we'll, we will give you money for education if we can get an income tax. Because up prior to 1972, we didn't have an income tax in Maine, just like Newton Hampshire. They don't need an income tax. They don't need a sales tax. They've got better roads, better schools, better bridges, better hospitals, better jails, and no income tax, no sales tax. I've testified in Augusta and recommended we send a busload of legislators over there to find out how they do that. It kind of offends the legislators that we've got to have these programs in Maine. So, we Bruce said that uh, two-thirds of our budget in the federal government is on autopilot. And it goes to medical care, it goes to Medicaid, and it goes to Social Security. Well, we had money for that until Lyndon Johnson came along. 1964, he started the Grand Society. It's going to provide for everybody. Well, we're doing that. But 95 million people, adults in our country, not working. They're not starving to death. Most of those people, I believe, would like to work. They'd like to have a job. There are not very many people that go to school and say, well, when I, when I graduate from school... When I'm an adult, I just want to go on the dole. I want to be on welfare like my mother was and my grandmother. They were on welfare their whole life. I want to be on welfare. We do have such people. I do not believe that they are the majority. There are people who think they can go out and work and earn money and provide for themselves and build a life for themselves. Have a family and go old and Enjoy the grandchildren. And I still believe in that American ethic, that American ideal, but it's fading. Bills are leaving Maine. We still have a paper industry. It's in decline nationally. People use less paper. We're always going to need Kleenexes, and we're always going to need toilet paper. We're going to need paper towels, get along without paper towels, but there's some real nice convenience to have the quicker picker-upper and not have a piece of cloth, a towel there that you've got to put to the washing machine or wash by hand. 
There may come a time in our country when we're washing towels by hand and diapers too. Because this standard of living is not sustainable. It is simply not sustainable. We don't produce enough to create enough money. And printing more money is not the answer. And I've mentioned this before, and I'll mention it again. In 1916, you could buy a cow with a $20 gold piece. Today, you can buy a cow with that same $20 gold piece. But a $20 bill doesn't get you very far down the meat counter. So what happened? Well, a bunch of bunch of the world's wealthiest families, nine families, got together on Jekyll Island, Georgia, and they said, let's see if we can scam the United States into letting us print their money. They will put enough money to get them out of this little brief recession we're in right now, around 1915, I don't remember the exact date, and we'll control the currency. It will control the nation. The country said, oh, okay, and they let them do it. We need to put them out of business. John Kennedy tried that. He said, well, that's not right. But we need to get <clears throat> recover from this self-defeating system that they've created. The Federal Reserve is putting a great deal of pressure on credit unions, small banks, and car dealers. Yeah, car dealers. The dealers, <clears throat> General Motors, Chrysler Corporation, Ford Motor Company, have their own lending uh, systems. They lend money on on cars. Well, cars are a big part of a family's total expense. They make a car payment, and that money is going to Ford or Chrysler or General Motors, GMAC, General Motors Acceptance Corporation. They'll accept just about anybody. The interest rate varies according to their risk and your ability to pay. So if you've got a guy that's just barely hanging in there, they want to sell you a car. And they'll lend you the money to sell the car. Well, right now, the Federal Reserve is printing money with no no interest. They're passing out money, provided you agree to repay the money. I mean, it's it's not total welfare like much of the welfare system we have. They'll give you money and to buy food and, and fuel and shoes and clothes for the kids and whatnot. And they don't expect to get it back. They're just lending it out. You're flooding the market with cheap currency because it was not earned. And that's that creates inflation for everybody else that did earn it. It's a bad bad situation that you can't continue. And they found that out in Germany when, when it took a wheelbarrow full of money to to buy a loaf of bread. And the people in Germany got sick of it and they hung the bankers outside the bank from the lampposts. Left them hanging there. And the bank... <laughs> Germany reconsidered when that started happening. And you, the guy's worked hard and he earns a paycheck or he earns the cash. And then you tell him, well, yeah, you worked hard and you got paid, but your money's not worth anything. What, is the, what has the 
the employee gain? Nothing. If the money he earned isn't worth anything, you know, you're going to have dissatisfaction among the population. And we did that in the world. And Adolf Hitler came along and said, I got the answer. This is what I'm going to do. And they built up a huge army. And they didn't build that army with Reichsmarks, which was the currency at the time. All that wheelbarrow full of worthless money isn't what built the German army from 1932 to 1938. Six years, they built a huge army. They built a huge air force. They had tanks and ships, submarines, and an air force in six years. How'd that happen? It wasn't done with Reichsmarks, that worthless paper currency. It was done with gold. You don't read that. You don't read that in history books. But if you stop and ask that question, how did they do this? They were impoverished, debt-loaded country with nothing after World War One. They had steel, they could make steel, and they had coal. They could refine the iron ore to make steel. And they built that army, much to the surprise of the rest of Europe, because they did it quietly. And then World War II came along. And all of the horrors of that. The Russians killed a lot more people than the Germans did. But Russia built a whole bunch of fighter planes. They had some really good attack planes that were designed they were anti-armor planes and they could blow up a tank and they had a lot of women pilots. Lots of women pilots in World War II and they had a lot of women snipers in Russia because as I said earlier women make better snipers because they have the fine motor skills and the patience and the uh, and the will. They want their family to live. And they serve their army well. It's a really famous women snipers. Finland had a sniper, had a lot of snipers, but they had one sniper who killed about 700 Russians with an open sight Mosin de Gant rifle. That's a 7.65 by 54 cartridge. It's a big cartridge. 30 caliber, essentially, rimmed cartridge. They, uh, if you know what a 30-40 Krag looks like, it is a similar cartridge to that. But an armored force of tanks have to refuel the tanks, and they all have to eat, and they all have to relieve themselves, and they have to get water, they ate a lot of soup because soup is nutritious and it's it's hot and easy to make. It stays hot longer than a plate of meat and vegetables. So this sniper, a Russian would stick his head up out of the hatch on a tank and look around, bam, he'd shoot him in the head. Whoop, down into the tank he goes. The other three or four guys in the tank 
their friend, usually the tank commander, dead. Well, who's going to stick his head out through the hole next? They would yell from inside the tank, hey, come refuel us and take this dead guy. Nobody wanted to go near that tank because somewhere in the forest was a rifleman that knew how to shoot. And the most dangerous troop on the battlefield is the rifleman in the forest. We have a lot of forest in Maine. We're the most forested state in the entire nation. Environmental crazies think we're losing our forest. I learned yesterday that the spruce budworm is in Maine. It has come across the border from Quebec into northwestern Maine. It's still on the other side of the St. John River, but a moth can fly across the river. There's no question about that. And as some may remember from the 1980s, when the when the spruce budworm migrates, they fly straight up in the air, hundreds of feet in the air, and let the wind carry them to the next. And then when they look down and they spot spruce, they stop flying and float down out of the air into a spruce forest and reproduce and wipe out the spruce forest. We don't know any more about how to prevent it than we did in the 80s. Now, in the 80s, we had old World War II bombers flying over the northwestern Maine and spraying against the spruce budworm. Some of the landowners were able to, to save a lot more spruce than, uh, than other landowners because they, they did that. And they, it was well, well worthwhile doing it to save more spruce. Now, the environmentalists are going to a local court and they get an injunction against doing that because they've got environmentalist lawyers and they've got environmentalist judges and they tie the state right in knots. A big reason that there are no paper mills operating on the Penobscot River today is environmentalists. They hold victory parties. They're just delighted. Something happened last week that really gladdened the cockles of my pea-picking heart. Paul LePage says, we're going to bulldoze right through Roxanne's imaginary park, and we're going to do a harvest on state-owned land outside of Baxter Park. It's on the east side of Baxter Park, west of the of the east branch of the Penobscot River. They're going to do a little harvest in there, and the truckloads of logs are going to go right back out through the right-of-way through Roxy Inn's land because they have a deeded right-of-way to that property, and they're going to do a harvest. They're plowing the road. They're going to fix the bridge because Roxanne took the bridge out. She hired one of the logging companies up here to remove that bridge and several other bridges. The environmentalists would like us to go back to a pre-Columbian state, which is before Columbus ever came here. That's their goal. They say that in their own internal publications, and I've got some of those. That's what they want for us. They want depopulation. I coined the term more than 20 years ago, rural cleansing. They had ethnic cleansing going on in Bosnia and Serbia, various other places, Kosovo province in Serbia. 
there's a lot of people getting killed over there. And they called it ethnic cleansing because the Muslims are trying to defeat the Christians in Serbia, as they've been trying to do for over a thousand years. And they got a little froggy, and they decided to try it again because Marshal Tito had died, and Yugoslavia fell apart into its own separate nations. Bosnia, Serbia, Croatia, and Kosovo, which is not a nation, never was, it's it's the province of Serbia. And the Bosnians, the Muslims, I should say, the Muslims tried to defeat the Christians again. Well, we're letting them into Europe. The Christians are letting them get away with it. You read about it every day, you know. And the atrocities that are occurring are best suited for Internet websites, YouTube, and things like that. It's not not something that we Christians like to speak about in polite society. We do have polite society still. My church made me a deacon, much to my surprise, but I meet the qualifications in First Timothy and Titus, and I'm a deacon, which you know, some churches being a deacon is, is a really big deal. Deacon pinch hits for the pastor when he's out of town. In other churches, deacon is uh, essentially a sexton. You know, he makes sure the, the church is warm enough to have service on Sunday morning and mows the lawn and, and uh, trims the brush and fixes a broken window when a partridge flies through it and whatever. So uh, a deacon is kind of a jack-of-all-trades. He tries to make things run smoothly in a church. That's my impression of it. But, you know, we have civilization here. We have polite society. We have a few grouches and a few radicals. But basically, the FBI says that Maine is the safest state. But we are staring at the face of evil, and it is growing in our nation. We lost Judge Antonin Scalia last Saturday. He was found dead in his bed, on his bed, at a resort. He'd been he'd been uh, quail hunting in West Texas. They found him on his bed, fully clothed, with a pillow over his face. That's a fact. To me, that's suspicious. The United States Supreme Court justice is found that way, dead. There was no autopsy. They said, well, he's 79 years old, that's too bad. But the effect on what's going to happen in our nation because of the loss of Judge Antonin Scalia is immense. I went to a meeting last night of the Penobscot County Republican Committee. We've got some caucuses coming up. All town caucuses in Maine, in the Republican Party, are going to happen on March 5th. Now, in Penobscot County, uh, they're going to be in Newport and at, Hus- at 
no, excuse me, they're going to be at Hudson University and Mananoco Academy in Lincoln. So your registrar of voters has to travel from Xin Pond down to well, Mount Chase, I should say. That's the name of the town. I think of it as Xin Pond. From Mount Chase down to Mananoco Academy with the list of registered Republicans and as many people as you can get travel that far are going to sit around and choose their town chairman, their vice chair, treasurer, secretary, and uh, delegates to the county committee and delegates to the state convention, which is going to be the end of April this year. It comes early this year. And then you're going to vote for the Republican candidate that you would like to see get the nomination for president. Now, South Carolina is going to caucus tomorrow. We're going to caucus in two weeks, on March 5th. And we'll probably know who the candidate is going to be prior to March 5th, because Super Tuesday comes in prior to that. But anyway, this stunt, as I call it, was cooked up by the Republican National Committee because they didn't like the fact that Maine sent a delegation down there four years ago to Tampa. And they didn't, didn't like the, uh, the way that Maine had come up with its own patriotic constitutional platform again. Now, the first time this happened was, was 14 years ago, and that came off my computer. I was part of a large number of people in the 2nd District that came up with a state platform for the Republican Party. And that was printed the night before at Staples in Augusta. And it was printed on salmon-colored paper because the salmon issue down east was a big, big issue 14 years ago. Well, then four years ago, they came up excuse me, six years ago, they came up with a surprise platform again. And it was adopted. The people said, well, yeah, now that's a platform. It supported Maine values. It supported, uh, it had a right to life issue. It had, they wanted to do away with lurk. And lots of good stuff in that platform. Threw out the Democrat light platform and, and adopted it in the state of Maine. And the establishment didn't like that at all. They just really didn't like it. And they went to war against conservatives again. They're trying to get rid of all the conservatives on the state committee and all the conservatives in the county committees, and they're making pretty good progress at it. It's up to us to dig in our heels and show up for these caucuses. As inconvenient as they have made it, like the patriots of old, on April 19, 1775, it wasn't convenient to get up that morning, pick up your musket and your powder horn, and head for Concord. But they did it. They did it. They stood up. We created the greatest nation in the world, the greatest constitution ever written by man. And it's up to us to support and defend it against all enemies, foreign and domestic. 
which is the oath I took in 1957 when I went to work for the post office. They needed extra help Christmases, and I I worked for the post office two Christmases. <laughs> Every time I'd bring the mail to a house, I used to deliver to the house, I'd walk up the front walk and, and put the mail in the mail slot or in the, in the box that was you know nailed to the side of the house, and a guy would open up and say, come on in and have a drink. <laughs> well, if I had taken a drink every time I was invited to have a drink back then, I wouldn't be able to find the post office, much, <laughs> much less show up for work the next day. I didn't do that. But, you know, when I took the job, the postmaster in town was was a very formal, strict type of individual, and he had me raise my right hand and repeat it after him that I would support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America against all enemies, both foreign and domestic. And he emphasized, and domestic. We did have domestic enemies in 1957. We had a lot of communists. You know where they are now? They're in our universities, in our public schools, teaching our kids. They're still there. We've got to, we've got to stop this to get a grip on it and reassess where we are and where we want to go from here. We're going to regain our liberties. And at the last convention two years ago, the biggest round of applause, standing ovation that just went on and on was when Bruce Poliquin stood up there at the podium and said he supported constitutional carry. Your Concealed firearms permit should be good coast to coast. You should be able to drive across our nation from Maine to California with a personal firearm in your possession. So if you run into a problem in Indiana with some calamity, you should have the means to defend yourself on your person right then. We mentioned this at Project Appleseed. We don't talk about politicians today. The only politicians we talk about are the politicians that were alive on April 19, 1775, but the principles endure forever. Politicians pass away, as Judge Anthony Scalia did last Saturday. Tremendous loss to our nation. And it's going to be difficult to replace him But Senator Susan Collins had a representative at the meeting last night in Bangor. And her position, as stated by her representative, is that we should not pick a replacement for Judge Scalia until after he's buried. He's being buried tomorrow. And according to Susan Collins' spokesman, it'd be okay to pick one Monday morning. No. It's not okay to pick one Monday morning. It should be picked by the next president who will be voted upon this coming November. Not by Barack Hussein Obama, whose handler is an Iranian citizen named Valerie Jarrett. We're in difficult times. We need to look back at what our forefathers did 
they gave us some really good examples about what to do in difficult times. Gallup now rates Maine as a purple state. In other words, we were a red state years ago. We became a blue state because we voted twice for Barack Obama in the state of Maine. Now now Gallup sees us as going back the other way. We're becoming more conservative than we were. I sure hope that continues. I'm going to do my part as long as I live. This has been the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, the Conscience of Maine, broadcast in Maine on WXME, 780 AM in Monticello, 1700 AM in Lewiston, 88.1 FM in Westbrook and Orono, 96.5 FM in Brewer, Bangor, Maine. As much of an inconvenience as it may be, get out and caucus with your town at the appointed place, at the inconvenient place and time, but our forefathers faced a whole lot of inconvenience. It's up to us to, to, to suck it up and get to these caucuses. Otherwise, the progressives are going to take over completely. That's the way it is. February 20th, 2016. Be safe. God bless. Wise men follow him. They rose again. Wise men follow him. 